Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have with us from the place where I was born, Carolyn Custis James. How are you? Just fine. How are you? Good. What part of Philadelphia are you in right now? It's the, it's the Northwest. It's okay. Sellersville is the name of the little town. So okay. Now, I actually grew up right outside of Valley Forge Park over in the Phoenixville, oh, wow. Allentown area. So that's, um, that's where I'm from. Yeah, a lot of history. Yes, I am pretty much a history buff because I used to go to Valley Forge Park when I was eight. Um, so if you ever need someone to build you a log cabin for the winter, come talk to me. <laughs> come talk. Now, I heard some very exciting news. There is a new little girl in your family named Avery. Yes. Just, we have... just born. Your second granddaughter? Yes. Yes. And she... my, hus- my husband's in denial about being a grandfather. But, <laughs> but anyway, yes, we have two little girls. So and very the, exciting. And the oldest one also starts with an A? Arden. Yes. Arden. Now, I have three daughters, Avery, Adeline, and Audrey. So ah. we are very similar name game. And your daughter, your granddaughter was also born in Florida, which is where my Avery was born. Okay. We're, okay. we're basically related now. That's very cool. Yes. Outstanding. Now, <laughs> I heard a rumor that at one point your husband was the president of Reformed Theological Seminary. Is that true or false? It's true. In Orlando, the in- Orlando campus. Okay. So if your husband worked at Reformed Theological Seminary, does that mean you guys are both Reformed? Do you have to be Reformed to work there? Um, yes, I think certainly you do. Okay, so what are the chances that we were predestined to do this podcast for me to talk <laughs> you out of Calvinism? One to ten, what are my chances on that? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not feeling your... We'll just go to talk, talk about something else. Since okay. I don't feel like I can talk you out of that in an hour. Do you think, okay. I, do you think I can? Um, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's too funny. Okay. So you, grandmother, you got two granddaughters. Very exciting. Yes. You are also a grad. I'm telling you like you don't know this. I'm telling you, you are a grad of Dallas Theological Seminary. Yes. The first class of women who graduate from DTS. Is that you? Yes. How exciting is that? Um, it's very exciting. Uh-huh. <laughs> when, um, so when you went through DTS, what makes you go and say, I want to be a part of the seminary when there are no women who've graduated from DTS before? Oh, you know, I was, I was always just hungry for, to learn more. Uh, when I was in college, I studied under Robert Gundry. Um, it was like entering a whole new sphere of the study of scripture. Really? And so, you know, I have just always been hungry and wanting to dig and study and learn more. And, you know, that's never stopped. Um, You know, in fact, when my husband and I first met and we started talking about, you know, how we felt about our lives, I, you know, I said to him, I want to keep learning. I want to grow. I want to change. And um, it's been quite a journey. I mean, if you follow my, follow the route that I've been on is it's quite a journey, um, you know, of just learning more and, um, seeing a bigger picture of what the gospel is, what uh, Jesus came to do, uh, his calling on me, uh, just, just, yeah, just Hmm. getting bigger and bigger. That's great. So you went to seminary just to learn more, not, did you have a career mind or it was just simply, I want to learn more? 
I, I just wanted to learn more. And that, you know, I mean, that's where, um, it's the way it's turned out is completely different from what I had in mind. I mean, they, they've done analyses of women in seminaries and usually the first group that goes through is just happy to be there. Hmm. Um, but as the, you know, subsequent classes come in, um, there starts to be a little bit of anger about how the, you know, the hmm. limitations on them or maybe how they're treated. Um, but no, I didn't have, I didn't have any ideas. I, I grew up in a very conservative um, uh, family and church, and it was like you—you you know, when you're a woman, your God's plan for you is to get married and make babies, and mm-hmm. you know, stay at home and take care of the children, which was what I wanted to do. And um, you know, the thing that happened to me was after college, there wasn't anybody I wanted to marry. And so, you know, when you, when you believe that your calling is to be a wife and mother, it's your life story depends on other people. And when they don't show up and that's the game plan, it's like, you don't have a story. Um, so, I mean, it was really an important phase in my life. It was very difficult, but it was when I started asking questions and Hmm. saying, you know, what, what is my purpose as a woman? And is this something that I can miss or lose or ruin, or, you know, somebody can take it from me? Um, because some, I, I, you know, the message that we hear from the church doesn't give us something that is indestructible. It gives us something that's conditional. And I mean, that's a a segue into what I did, uh, when I wrote Maelstrom, mm-hmm. um, because the same questions need to be asked for men. Yeah. You know, okay, you before know. we jump to the book, I've got follow-up questions. Okay. That's a very interesting stuff. Okay, first of all, as you're describing how you go into DTS, it reminds me of what Barbara Brown Taylor once told me, that she went to seminary and had no idea of what she was going to do. She just wanted yeah. to go, and she was excited about it. And uh, you said the first class is excited just to be there. Oh, which yeah. makes perfect sense to me. And then eventually the, the, the following classes start to have anger of what they can't do. Right. Do you think that anger still exists for women who are going into seminary or, or do you think that has subsided some? You know, um, it's a mix. There, there are women who are treated wonderfully when they're in seminary, who are highly respected. They're female faculty members. That, but there are always stories, you know, I hear them about women who get asked the question, what are you doing here? Or, you know, where there have been in some seminaries, um, a tightening of the, of the uh, restrictions on what women can do, like, you know, whether or not they can take the preaching class. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's still there. It's still there. And you can just have a conversation with a fellow student that, you know, is devastating because it's like you don't belong here or, yeah. you know, what's the point? What do you say to the person who says, well, okay, if, if you're a woman and in our tradition, a conservative tradition, you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z. So why would you even go to seminary? What would you say to that person? Well, bottom line, we're all in the business of knowing God, right? Yeah. And why shouldn't I have better tools to do that? Hmm. And why shouldn't what what limitation should there possibly be on me as a woman um, or a man to know more? You know, I it doesn't make any sense to me that they would say you can you can come this far 
But then, you know, then we don't want to equip you anymore and we don't want you to move beyond, you know, we don't want you to, to know more. It, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. What about some who feel, as you described, your original uh, kind of understanding your purpose was to get married and have babies. Um, some might hear that and go, well, what if that is like what I want to do? That is the, the career, the life that I want. Is that somehow inferior to those who don't want to do that? They want to maybe do that or not do that and add something else to it. Does that displace the importance on that, that lifestyle? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I get that reaction a lot that when you, when you say that God's purpose for his daughters is bigger than that, that it diminishes that. And it doesn't, I mean, if you're a wife and a mother, those are, those are kingdom front lines and, um, you know, they're very important. I am a wife and mother and those are huge, hugely important to me. But, you know, if you look at my whole story, it's, it's not the whole story. You know, I had a big chunk of time ahead of that. You know, did I not have any purpose as a woman until I got married? You know, and my mother, I always talk about her. She was married for 69 years And now she's a widow, you know, and, and a lot of women think the story's over. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not over. You know, there's purpose for her now that's different. It's a new, it's a, it's a new different chapter and, um, and God is still working through her and in her. So, you know, I'm looking at the whole span of, of a person's life and, and, you know, marriage and motherhood, um, are callings that most women answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it doesn't demand, I think the things that I'm learning about what God calls his daughters to be and do um, makes those callings more important than ever. Yeah, oh, that's good. And it's great to hear that it doesn't diminish the role of those who do feel like that is, that's just what they want to do. And that's the centerpiece. And there's, I don't, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful thing, but there are also those who have giftings of teaching like you do that want to be able to use the gifts you have along with other giftings. And it's great that it's not an either or. It's not you pick one or the other. They, they no. all go together. No. And, no. and so you have the gift of teaching. That's what you, uh, you've been equipped to do, uh, among other things. And part of that teaching decides you want to be faithful to this calling to write about the issue of being a man and manhood. Now, some are going to wonder what makes a woman decided to take up the cause of her brother and end up writing a book about manhood. <laughs> Insanity. <laughs> I never thought about writing a book about womanhood. I don't think I'm scared to do that. Well, a lot of men do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we, Oh, we, men, we deserve to have women write books about us since we've been writing books about womanhood for so long. Okay. Fair enough. No. I mean, what happened? I mean, I've done four books that really focus on women, even though those are books that men have been reading too. Um, but the last book that I wrote before this one, it was half the church. Mm-hmm. And the very title of that book says there's more to be discussed. You know, this is half. And, um, so that was a piece of it, you know, that the conversation isn't complete if we only talk about women, um, or if we only talk about men, we need to bring those two conversations together. And, um, and I wanted to do that. Um, the other, the, or there are a couple of other things that influenced me. One was just the, um, the things that I was learning about what's happening to women and girls in the world was, was very upsetting to me. The book that I read before I wrote half the church 
was the book by Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudunn called Half the Sky. And it's about um, the atrocities that are happening to women and girls. It's like sex trafficking and honor killings and gender side and, um, you know, child marriages. It's just, it goes on and on and on. And it's a, it's a difficult read, but it's a, it's an important read. I think every Christian ought to read that book. Um, but anyway, when you look at what the statistics, for example, they'll say the statistic is that 70% of, of, uh, humans who are trafficked in today's world, 70% are women and girls, you know, that's huge, but that means 30% are men and boys. And, um, I tracked down the numbers with the friend who works for the, um, U S census bureau. And she said, you're talking about roughly the population of New York City proper. Wow. That, that, you know, so, and, and we, we, we get upset about women and girls, but we don't talk about the fact that it, there's a huge number. It's like 8,000, 8 million, sorry, about 8 million. Um, and the numbers, you know, are probably an underestimate of, of what we're dealing with. But, you know, I started looking at that. I heard uh, one man talking about how in the church every Sunday men, men are marginalized. Um, and, you know, if they don't show up with the right um, portfolio, the right interest in books, the right, you know, seminary degree, or, you know, if they're, if they're men who like to work with their hands, it's, they're, they're not as important as other, as yeah. other men. And, um, you know, so I started hearing things like that. And then the other thing was that as I studied the stories of women in the Bible, I was coming across men who, who have been, um, eclipsed or just neglected in, in their stories. They're not the ones we tend to zero in on when we do, um, when we talk about men in the Bible, um, but I was seeing in their stories just in extraordinary examples of gospel living, hmm. um, of their redemptive stories. They are stories full of hope. Um, it anyway, it was just it was a a whole new take on what it means to be a man who who is part of the kingdom of Jesus, and hmm. and I wanted to tell those stories. So all those things kind of came together, and it was like. Yeah, I need to do this. Well, I found it very refreshing. I liked your perspective on it. I liked the, the take you had on it. Uh, when one of my, my friends, Jonathan, first said, hey, you need to check out this book, uh, Maelstrom, I thought, that's a, I have no clue what that word means. And so <laughs> once I Google that, or actually the first part of your book talks about it, it's a, it's a big swirling whirlpool or something in the ocean. It's a big storm. There, but I thought the – did you pick that just because the word male was in it and you thought, hey, I can play off this and confuse people like – like podcasters <laughs> named Luke who don't know what this yeah. is. Is that what that was? Well, I, you know, I wanted a one word title and I wanted something with male in it. And, <laughs> and you know, what I see when I study what's happening to men and boys is like a storm, you yeah. know, it's, it's like pulling them down. And, um, I don't, I don't think men realize that it, that it touches everybody. It's not, you know, just the ones who are trafficked, but it's the ones who think they're okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that I, when I talk about this, I have a PowerPoint slide where I have pictures of men who are world leaders and, you know, it's, it's Obama and it's, you know, it's uh, other government leaders or, you know, 
guys that do. you have do Donald Trump on there? <laughs> no, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but I mean, the whole point is that they, that I have to keep changing the pictures because they fall from power. You know, they get, they get assassinated. They, you know, make some moral uh, choice that, yeah. you know, and so even if you're at the top of the power pyramid, you're not safe. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I just started looking at all of that and, and saying, you know what, there's, there's a really big problem here that we're, that we're not talking about. Yeah. It, it is like this big world whirlpool that yeah. it swallows everyone up or it can. And one of the things you said in there, which I love, cause I've, I've, I've talked about this a few times is the father's day phenomenon. Like mm-hmm. on mother's day, we say mothers, you're doing the work of God and we're so proud of you. <laughs> and on father's day, we say, come on guys, get tough. You, you need to man up. Like what? Why does that happen? Yeah. Why can't we say the same thing on Mother's Day and Father's Day? I what, know. What do you think makes us do that? What, like, I'm a pastor. What makes me feel like on Father's Day, I need to tell men, you need to man up. But on Mother's Day, I say, you're doing the work of God and you're loved. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Because, I mean, dads, they're all kinds of fathers. And, um, you know, they need encouragement. And they get, they get, I mean, this is what these men told me, you know, they said, we hate Father's Day. And the very next Father's Day, um, I watched a, a television preacher. And that's what he was doing, you know, get off the couch, <laughs> kind of talk, yeah. you know, so I, yeah, and, and I think there is in church, a, a lot of browbeating of men. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's not, we're not giving them the freedom to be who God has made them to be. And instead we're all trying to squeeze them into the same mold and, mm-hmm. you know, they don't fit. Yeah. So. And so the kind of mold is you like to, to shoot things or hunt or you make good money and you like sports. And if you don't fit into that, often our definition of manhood is kind of uh, limited. If you don't do those things and all of a sudden you're excluded. And so you talk about how like we're, we're leaving men out who, who don't fit into that world. And so part of like your book is wrestling with, you know, what's the difference between sex and gender? And, and you touched on that at least, but I think that's a big part of understanding what does it mean to be a man? Because often what we have defined as manhood is our cultural definition of it. Yeah, yeah. And so you've pointed us to something bigger than that. You point us to the image of God, and, and we'll get to that in a second. But you, you make this uh, provocative statement that the history of the world is men killing others, mm. which is a pretty – I mean, as I've thought about it, I thought, I don't know if I can really disagree with that, but it's a pretty harsh statement to say, like, that's the history is men killing basically other men and yeah. women. But you read the history books, and that's that's what they talk about, you know, mm-hmm. is all the wars and all the violence. And, yeah. um, you know, my husband's an historian, and he just um, wrote uh, the second volume of church history that Zondervan published and talked about um, – what Christians were doing to other Christians. And, uh, you know, I always read, he, he, we all read each other's work. We're sort of the first editors on what, what we each do. And, you know, there were points in his book where I just had to put my head on the table and weep over the things that Christians were doing over doctrinal differences to others. You know, and it wasn't just that they were killing them. It was that they were making sure they suffered before they died. I mean, it was just a... Uh, just appalling and you know i mean it starts with cain and abel and it's it is it is i mean look at the news today 
So some might wonder, okay, if, if we're defining sex as biology and gender as culture, like we, we've learned our masculine gender by our culture, but sex is just the biology of it, and we, we understand that. We, we took eighth grade biology. We know what's going on there. Uh, if you look throughout history, and men have always done this, is this something that we really can disassociate from gender and say, actually, this is just part of being a male? Or is there a way to say, no, 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 this is what we've learned and we can unlearn this way of doing manhood? Yeah, I, I think it's, it comes with the fall. Mm-hmm. And, I don't, you know, before the fall, men and women were created to rule creation, not to rule each other. And after the fall... You know, you have this statement, you know, this made to the woman that the man will rule over her. But there, it also follows that men rule over other men. And the, the, the dominion changes from being creation to promote flourishing mm-hmm. um, and well-being to being, you know, about who's, who's, who rises to the top here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think those are fallen instincts and and the gospel is the antithesis of that because we're called to lay down our lives for others. We're called to put the interests of others ahead of ourselves, you know, so it's, it's, you know, I think that what you see in the beginning and what you see in the gospel line up and what happens in the middle is that we are in competition, um, with each other. I mean, we, we feel it in our own hearts, you know, when somebody, when somebody does better than we do about something or, um, yeah. so I don't, you know, I don't know. I think, um, you know, I tend to think that, that these are, it, it has to do with the fall mm-hmm. and, um, and that also there is a lot of conditioning that goes on. Mm-hmm. So before we get to the image of God, which is a lot of your argument as to what we can do to, to recondition ourselves, you talk about one of the major problems is the fact that we have a, a chapter that's missing in the Bible. We don't know fall, like pre-fall man and womanhood. We don't know what that was like, and so it's missing from the Bible. Um, so kind of tell me more about what was behind that statement, because obviously it would be nice to, to know that, but um, if we don't have it, then how can we really— um, uh, understand manhood before the fall if so much of what we have is after the fall does that make Mm -hmm. sense yeah yeah and i I mean i love what paul says when he when he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling it's like we're in a process of figuring this out Mm -hmm. and you know at any point when you think you've landed um you know and you don't have to learn anymore um you know you're stuck Mm -hmm. you know it's not because, because I, I mean, I always, I always talk about what the line in the Bono song, uh, you know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, the Bible is, is to be studied and that there's more for us to learn and, and that we have, we have those first two chapters that tell us, you know, a, the narrative of creation and then we have the fall, so we don't see it play out. But all along the way, we get snatches of it, you know, in these stories that are in the Bible, and especially in Jesus. That's where that's where we see it hmm. in, in its fullness, uh, because he's the perfect image bearer. 
And, you know, it's hard to understand him. I mean, nobody's mastered him. There are things he says that are well, just like... Well, wait a minute. I feel like I got a pretty good grasp on him myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, well, a lot of people do. You know, it's sort of like we know these stories and we know about the miracles and the parable, you know, but, yeah. but when you really listen to him or when you think about the comments that he makes, it's like we're scratching our heads and that isn't, that isn't what I think he should have said or would have said. And, Mm -hmm. and it's hard to, it's hard to understand it. There's a lot that's hard to understand about him. Mm -hmm. You you seem to make uh, patriarchy a a big part of the problem that has ensued with the, uh, you know, the continual de-evolution of manhood. And you make the the point that before the fall, there were no signs of patriarchy. So pre-fall, there's no signs of patriarchy. Now, some might push back and say, wait a minute, didn't Adam name Eve and didn't she come from him? Wouldn't that be a sign pointing towards patriarchy? Yeah. You know, I I think that's reading a lot into it. And um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I saw a reference just yesterday of somebody saying that that there's it is patriarchy is there because God speaks to Adam first. You know, but, but, you know, the, the first shall be last is what Jesus says. And all the way, all the way through the old Testament, you have, this is primogeniture that says whoever is first is the most important or is the leader. But in the, in, in what God does, even in Genesis, he's, he keeps up ending that because he chooses son number two or son number four or son number 11 or, you know, so it's, you know, the. The thing that I began to see in my study was that the things that we that we hold to as part of patriarchy and how full-fledged patriarchy is defined is is being dismantled in in scripture and you know right away like in um in the creation narrative where at the very end of the of the passage where it's it's talking about the creation of male and female um, it says, um, for this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And in patriarchy, the wife is absorbed into the husband's family. It's, it, it what's being said in the Bible is the opposite of patriarchy hmm. and, and women, women and men who live in patriarchy cultures would tell you that right away. One of the biggest miseries of patriarchy is the you know, having to be under the thumb, the woman having to be under the thumb of her, her in-laws, hmm. um, you know, so it's. As, as someone who's about to go live near my in-laws, I think that's a really important message, even for men. They don't <laughs> need to be under the thumb of their in-laws. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, you, yeah, that, the, the connection made to primogenture, uh, the, the firstborn having preference is really interesting because obviously God is continually undoing that. But that was a major part of the culture, just like patriarchy. And I think you even made a point that it was like the uh, the crown jewel of patriarchy, right? Primogeniture. Yeah. Yeah. But it's weird that patriarchy has continued to have a large uh, place in Christendom. Like it, yeah. people still function under patriarchy, but no one ever talks about primogeniture. No one ever says, well, you're the firstborn son, so you get preference in church. Yeah. What made us like discard that so quickly, but we hold on to patriarchy so tightly? Uh, you know, we've discarded a lot of things. We've discarded slavery and polygamy and, you know, it, the, the, in, in patriarchal cultures, you would be a disaster as, as, because you have three daughters and no sons, you know? So <laughs> I've got a male dog. Doesn't that count? 
he's a, he's a pathetic dog. So never mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, it's it's it is uh, the worst thing that can happen to a man in a patriarchal culture is not to have a son. You know, he I just punch someone in the face. I I get so because people still say, "Hey, aren't you going to try for a boy?" No, I don't want to try for a boy. They might end up like you guys. I don't want you. No, I like my daughter better than you. But there's still like undertones, a little bit of that, but it's not nearly as. Yeah. It's not serious like people continue to um, to hold patriarchy in the same way that they, they don't hold primogeniture. I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, and I talk about that we're, we're sitting on a continuum. Yeah. That's what we're doing. And we've, we, we're, you know, we're not, patri- we're not patriarchal like ISIS, but they're on that continuum too. You know, we've, we've got a kinder, gentler version that in the church we're trying to you know, sort out, you know, and, and at the opposite end of, you know, religious fundamentalists, you have, you know, radical feminism and we're sort of in the middle trying to, you know, navigate where is the right spot. And, and there's not a lot of agreement actually, even in the two, within the two camps, there's disagreement. Yeah. So speaking of feminism, you make the point in the book that, uh, I think your line was, there's no cultural change that has reconfigured the social landscape more than the rise of women. Mm. Like that's been a huge issue. I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with uh, Ben Witherington's quote, but he said, the problem of the church isn't strong women, it's weak men, which I thought was really interesting because some people think that's like the worst thing that's ever happened. And you say it's, it's a, the big, one of the biggest cultural changes. Are you saying that it's a good cultural change, a bad cultural change, or – or are you going to go Richard Rohr and say it's it's neither good nor bad? Um, you know, it's, it is probably a mix. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I think a lot of things that feminism has achieved has benefited us in enormous ways. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of ways that every day I'm benefited by by what has been accomplished. So, you know, to, to throw stones at that, I, I, you know, I'm not going to do that. But the other thing that, that I see is that for women to flourish, for women to be, um, who God created them to be, for them to, um, contribute to what's going on, for their minds to be developed, for them to be educated, I think it's hugely important. I think, you know, I think Jesus advocated for that when Mary of Bethany sat at his feet. Um, you know, she was a rabbinical student. That's exactly what, you know, that language, uh, you know, conveys. Mm-hmm. And so I see that as important. I don't see that as, um, I, I don't like to talk about, you know, the women are strong and the men are weak. Um, I think that's the, that's the bashing again, you know, where you're going to yell at the men for, you know, that the women are doing all of this. So, you know, what's wrong with you? I, I think they need the same kind of advocacy and the same kind of encouragement, but my goodness, you know, look what, look what men have done. You know, how, how can we possibly say, you know, there's, they're slacking, um, you know, I, it, it's just, it's this sort of teeter totter thing. You know, if the women, if the women, um, excel, it must mean that the men are declining and I don't buy that, you know, and I think the Bible calls for the flourishing of both and, um, you know, that it's tragic when one will, can flourish it with, without the other. And historically women have not flourished, you know, they've been, 
they've been they've not had access to education and there's there there's all sorts of loss that the world has uh, suffered because because women haven't been able to contribute like they should have been you know we wasted their minds and you know and we do that to boys men and boys too you know where we we don't encourage them in education and we're not you know, pushing them. And, and maybe there has been pushback on men because we, because of the desire to promote women. And, you know, I just think there's got to be a way that it can be both. Yeah. The mutual flourish. That's good. And that's a fair critique. The, the quote about, uh, the, the problem, the church isn't strong women, it's, it's weak men because it doesn't have to be either or. And that, that, that comment is very, um, either or. So that, I think yeah. that's good. And, and, the book, and you've kind of touched on a little bit in the conversation, it points towards living out of the image of God. And like, that's right. ultimately what we're pointing to. That's, that's pre-fall. That's Genesis one. That's what we're pointing towards. So how, how does living out of the image of God help us live into our God ordained manhood, womanhood? Yeah. You know, I, I, and typically we talk about it more like how we're being classified, you know, as, as human beings, as a higher life form, you know, that we have dignity and value and meaning, but it also means we have enormous responsibility. And, um, and this is where, you know, what it means to, to live in the image of God has to do with where you are, you know, and where he's, where he's situated you and what opportunities that you have, um, it means that that what's going on in God's world is our business, and so it's 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 not about you know I need to if I'm a man then I need to man up. It's it, that I need to look around me. I need to see who's hurting. I need to see what what needs to be done. I need to see the kinds of things we're talking about where, you know, some people don't get education and they don't flourish as human beings. Hmm. You know, it, it means we have responsibility outward um, yeah. to care, to care about God's world, to love it like he loves it. And, um, and so it means very physical things. It means, you know, the putting of others interests ahead of your own interests, uh, a living out of the gospel, um, you know, it puts us on red alert, you know, that, that, that we're in a battle against the darkness and we bring light and good news. Um, you know, so for, for me, it, it means you can't live an insignificant life, you know, that, that where you are is, is a kingdom front line and, um, that God is going to work through you to touch the lives of others, um, to, alleviate suffering, to work for justice, um, to spread the gospel. I mean, it's just, it, it means you're, you're strategic to God's kingdom purposes. And to me, it, to use the wrong word, it trumps, um, <laughs> you know, all the other options that we have, you know, that you, that you, um, you know, can beat up the other guy or you can, you know, you can be more manly, whatever that means. Um, it's it, a, yeah, yeah, it's a different, it's a, it reorients our understanding of manhood and something bigger than just our cultural expectation for a man as someone who, uh, you know, makes a lot of money, likes to go hunting on the weekend and, you know, drives a fast car. It, it points us to something bigger and you make the kind of the, the pushback to the popular take on the image of God stuff where, uh, you know, ancient Near Eastern practice of rulers placing statues of themselves around. And you say that's ultimately Lacking now, as someone who has continued to use that illustration in sermons, 
Um, what, why, <clears throat> why am I lacking when I go with that? Tell me what's a fuller understanding of that. Well, it's, you know, we are, we are living and, um, and we are progressing in how we reflect God. You know, we participate in divine revelation in how we live. Mm-hmm. You know, people are supposed to get a sense of, of who God is, of how he, how he loves them and cares for them by, um, by rubbing shoulders with us. And, and it's really key that, that God means for this to happen through men and women serving him together. Cause in the creation narrative, it's male and female. Everything's male and female. It's not, God isn't, you know, creating a football team of men. It's, it's a male female, you know, group that he's, you know, commissioning to, to do his work in the world. So it's, yeah, but you know, I mean, I think for a pastor, you know, to have a congregation in front of you where you're sending them out, you know, think what that does, what the potential is for the city, you know, that Christians are scattering on Monday morning into all different locations and that this is where light is going and, um, you know, where hope is present and where, you know, God is being reflected. I mean, it's huge. And, and we don't see ourselves that way. You know, it's like, you know, we, we think we're going to tidy up our lives and that's what being a Christian is all about. And, you know, maybe making more money and having more blessings, but it's not about that, that we're strategic for the mission that God is doing in the world. Every one of us, yeah. you know, even, even little children and even elderly people like my mother, hmm. you know, that God is using her where she is. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're his chosen mode of operation in the world. And so, you know, it, it gives us huge significance, yeah. you know, and it, and it takes off of us the pressure of, you know, am I feminine enough or am I masculine enough? It's like, am I enough like Jesus, you know, that, you know, and I don't think we can discard that. I mean, people say, yeah, 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 we're supposed to be like Jesus, but you know, how, what does it mean to be a woman? And, or what does it mean to be a man? And, and, and I just think it looks different in every person. Yeah. Okay. For the record, though, if you were at church and uh, I happened to be preaching there and I made the reference to ancient Near Eastern practices of, of, <laughs> of rulers putting statues around, you're not going to lean over to the person on the left and say, that's completely wrong. You're just going to say, <laughs> I could have done a little bit more with that. But, okay, I like that. It's the idea of we're not trying to be, you know, manhood or we're trying to be like Jesus. That's the ultimate goal to it. Now, in, in the book, you reference uh, one of your uh, fellow Calvinists uh, who said that <laughs> the, the the Bible has a masculine feel to it. And you kind of critique it and go, it doesn't, no, no, that's not right. So what about, what would you say to the person who says, you know, the image of God is it, God the Father. The image of God is Jesus, who was a man. Uh, is there a way to understand the image of God that it's more than just a masculine feel to it? You know, the, the, this is one of the things that I talk about in the book that, you know, the, the biblical story emerges from the patriarchal culture. And so because of that, we've concluded that the Bible is teaching patriarchy, although, you know, like we said earlier, we've discarded certain parts of patriarchy. And, um, and what I've come to understand 
is that patriarchy is a tool for understanding what the Bible is conveying. Mm -hmm. So if you understand the place of the father in patriarchy and how central he was to the family um, and, and how much rested on him, you know, it helps us to, as human beings to understand who God is. Um, But there are other ways that God presents himself in the Bible, you know, as, as, as a, you know, a mother, you know, in, in feminine ways and, and as a, as a bird, you know, as, as gathering chicks under, you know, his wings. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are lots of, we need all of that. We need everything we can get to try to understand more of who he is. And, you know, the father concept is hugely important and I wouldn't want to take away from that at all. But, you know, to say the, the, the Bible has a masculine, or the, the the Christianity has a masculine feel is is a, is is a pretty big overstatement, and it's sort of looking at it backwards, you know, as saying, um, and I and I think we do this with the attributes that we talk about, you know, when we say, okay, we're going to sort through these attributes, and these are the ones that go mainly to men, and these are the ones that are mainly feminine, you know, but they are all attributes of who God is. And we're called to all of them and, um, and not just, and it's, you know, it's, it's defining in them backwards, you know, it's like saying, okay, which ones are feminine and which ones are masculine instead of saying, are these attributes of God, you know, and how do I embrace them in, in my own life? Mm, that's good. That's very helpful. Okay. So this book came out, Maelstrom came out a couple months ago. Is that right? June. In June. June. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you've had a book on manhood that's been out for you know, three months or so. What has been the biggest like surprising response? Has anyone invited you to like uh, go to a men's conference and, <laughs> and with, put a beard on and, and do some Duck Dynasty stuff or make NASCAR jokes to guys so you can fit into what, like what is the what's the biggest surprise after writing a book on manhood that you've yeah. experienced? Um, from the positive end of things, there um, there have been sociologists who've been very Christian sociologists who've been very interested in my work, which is, you know, the, the voice of the sociologist is not always in the study of scripture. I mean, we tend to just have seminarians in that discussion, but we need all the disciplines to participate. And so that's been exciting. I got a wonderful, um, response from, uh, a man who is very involved in, in studying the global, uh, church. And, and he felt like this, this is, this book is needed globally, which, you know, I was hoping, um, you know, the, the, the discussion needs to be global. You know, we can't just talk about manhood or womanhood within an American setting. We're going to, we're going to distort what the Bible teaches because it, it needs to apply to every culture. And so that was, that was huge to me. Um, there was also, uh, a response on Amazon from a woman whose husband, um, she said he doesn't fit the typical masculine, you know, definition of manhood. And he's always felt bad about himself, felt badly about himself. And and she said that, that Maelstrom, she could tell a difference in him after he read the book, which, you know, just a confidence that had, I, and that just was exciting to me. Well, that's why you um, write a book for stuff like that. Yeah, it's very, I mean, I think a lot you know, my hope is that men will find this very freeing and affirming and not, 
Uh, I mean, it's written from a very sympathetic, concerned point of view. Um, I'm alarmed at what I've learned um, through through my work, and I and I don't think the message coming from the church is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it puts puts pressure on men um, for some of them for things that they can't do or they won't do or they, you know, try to do but fail at. You know, it just makes makes masculinity a very fragile thing that's contingent on on performance or on other people, you know, following your leadership, you know, the leadership that, um, being God's image bearer involves. And I think it's, it's implicit in being an image bearer doesn't, isn't dependent on somebody following you. It's, it's, it, it means you take responsibility and sometimes on your own by yourself. Um, so it's, you know, it's bigger than that, but on the negative side, Uh you know, one of the, one of the kind of consistent questions I hear is, um, you know, are you trying to make men soft, you know, and, and concern that what we talked about earlier that, you know, what is it, what does it mean to be a man? You know, tell me specifically what it means to be a man. That's not a woman. And, and I, you know, (laughs) that, that's people get stuck on that you know they feel like they're losing something and yeah i think if you're trying to make a more inclusive manhood that the man who doesn't have the typical quote-unquote manly behaviors uh can understand they're just as manly when you do that i think you open the door to say just because you do the manly things doesn't mean you're really a man i had the the weirdest uh comment one time from uh from someone who's who's the paragon of manly stuff and he said something he's like i don't feel like i'm as manly as this other person i said why not i mean you're you're bigger you're stronger you're all these things than that person and he said yeah but but he can say a, a prayer in front of his family and i can't do that and i thought wow yeah. that's really telling i mean there's and i think he gets it like there's more than manhood than just the stereotypical you know i like to to shoot things and i like to you know x y and z even inside of a very manly guy, he he saw that, and so yeah, if if people are pushing against that, like you are, that you are pointing to a more inclusive manhood, yeah, it, it can be uh, terrifying for them. But your book's not terrifying; it's very helpful. It's very good, Maelstrom. <laughs> it's out; you can get it anywhere. Now we're out of time. Otherwise, I was planning on, like I said, convincing you of why you shouldn't be a Calvinist. But we will have to be uh, looking forward to having a predestined time to do that in the future. Okay, I'll come back. Deal. This has been fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.